What does it mean for a group to be autonomous? What does it really mean to lead? Like all of these things became sort of quintessential questions of my journey. And I think it's a natural question to ask yourself once you start getting good at something, what does it mean to scale this? Like, what does it mean to have a bigger impact? And that's when I started to realize that if I could make a hundred producers 5% better at their job, that that was better than just me personally shipping more features. Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders of the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best team and company cultures in order to create the best games. Every episode brings actionable insight to improve your leadership, self-awareness, and emotional management skills. Because becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. So, are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. This episode has been brought to you by our sponsor, Appadeal, an all-in-one growth platform for mobile app creators of any size. While you have probably heard about Appadeal as a mediation solution, it has already expanded into much more than that. Appadeal unlocks access to a new generation of advanced business intelligence tools, including LTV forecasting, user acquisition and creative automation, and of course, the mediation platform that can work out of the box or be managed manually. Being one of the very few independent platforms left in the market, Appadeal delivers unbiased solutions for mobile app creators to establish and scale their businesses rapidly. Sign up at appadeal.com. So today, this is my second episode with a free guest, and I'm very excited to bring with me Aaron and Ben, that I've also talked to before in their own podcast, Building Better Games. But before I do any further intro, I would prefer to also leave them to introduce themselves, what they've done before and why we're here today. But before we start, today will be the focus on leadership, of course, and coach. And the question we've been asking ourselves as well, thinking about advancing the topic of leadership should a leader be a coach? And Ben, Aaron, hey, <laughs> nice to see you here. If you could introduce yourself and what you've done before, before we start our conversation. My name is Aaron Smith. I've been working in the games industry as a senior leader in production for 10 years or so. And now I am working on a leadership consultancy with Ben over here, where we help leaders become better leaders so that they can make better games. Would be a better way to say that. Yeah, pretty similar background in production, was at Riot for eight years doing all kinds of fun stuff. I very much enjoyed my time there and then moved on so I could pursue my passion of training leaders and trying to build organizations that really took leadership and culture very seriously because I believe it leads to better outcomes, better games. I have some background experience before that. I was in the military, I was an officer, and that gave me a different view of leadership than you see in games. And uh, I found that contrast to be helpful. Oh, yeah. I also worked at Riot. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for the intro. And I think it's important here to mention that you have been on like two type of experiences, like in game development, also big, uh, large organizations. Yeah. And now more on the coaching side, like with a consultancy organization. The reason as well why we connected, because I think we arrived to the same conclusion, although we haven't talked about it before, because I've also worked for a long time very hands-on on development, production, and I'm stepping a bit away from more like operations and more thinking about those high-level strategic topic, like culture, leadership. And you've also gone this path, but even further, like it's your full-time occupation. I wonder, was it the decision for you to really move away from, you know, hands-on development, which is why we enter in games, right? To really dedicate focus to concentrate on leaders, leadership, to help them make the games. I started realizing after several years at Riot that a lot of the job satisfaction I got wasn't in the work I did as an expert or as a producer or anything like that. It was when I was helping somebody else succeed. You know, I manage managers and so you're leading some amount of people, but I was helping them navigate challenges and I found it to just be unbelievably satisfying to be present as someone else had their journey and succeeded. You know, I had plenty of my own journeys to still go through. I'm still learning a lot. And when I thought about what is it that you like about that, and then simultaneously, Aaron and I were doing teaching around agility, how people work, like lots of stuff like this. I loved being in a room and watching people have the light bulb go off. I loved seeing that happen. I loved helping guide people through those. So eventually I got to a point and I was doing discipline development at Riot Games. So I was working, what does it mean to be a producer? What does it mean to be a development manager to hire and to train and all these things? But I found that at Riot, it's a video game company. They want me to make games. And I understand that. And I respect that immensely because they're a game company. I realized like I want to train people and I want to help organizations have better leaders. And I want to take what I've learned here and I want to bring it to more people because I found it so helpful and I've seen it help other people in this context. So that's when I left and decided, okay, well, let's see, how do I teach people? How do I coach people? How do I mentor people as three distinct things? And how do I focus more effort there on leveling up others? Because I actually found that to be more fulfilling than making games. Great. What about you, Aaron? It was a life-changing experience for me to learn and grow in my career the way I was given an opportunity to. I remember my first days at Riot as an intern, getting exposure to senior leaders there who saw the world differently than any leaders I'd ever worked with. And they gave me books and they modeled behaviors and they taught me lessons about seeing the world in a different way. Like an example is, what does it look like if you have an autonomous group of people who you trust to get the job done and you provide direction for them and clarity for them and you facilitate results, but they decide how they approach the work? This is a very different orientation towards teams and towards work than I'd ever heard of before as a, as a young guy just coming out of college and everything that I was taught and raised to believe. And so... There was a pivotal impact in those frameworks that I was given access to. And I think that my whole journey as I grew as a leader felt like it was about different frameworks and deepening my understanding of frameworks and, under, and, and using them and seeing which ones worked and how they worked and why. And then when I got senior enough, teaching other people those frameworks. 
And that became sort of the theme of my career is like, why does this work? And why is this tool effective and this one is not? How do we misuse these other tools? What does it mean for a group to be autonomous? What does it really mean to lead? Like all of these things became sort of quintessential questions of my journey. And I think it's a natural question to ask yourself once you start getting good at something, what does it mean to scale this? Like, what does it mean to have a bigger impact? And that's when I started to realize that if I could make a hundred producers 5% better at their job, that that was better than just me personally shipping more features. And that is the motivation for me now is if I can touch a hundred people's lives or 500 people's lives or a thousand people's lives, I have a outsized impact on the industry. And so that's my hope and my mission. I think that Ben and I share that. And that's one of the main reasons for me that we pivoted over to this strategy. It's like, I love shipping games. I miss it a lot. But for me, it's not like, well, do I really want to do stuff or do I really want to talk in front of a room for three hours? To me, I don't, <laughs> view it, I don't view it as that choice. I view this journey as a journey that I need to go on to have the impact that I want to have. Thanks for sharing your mission. Great missions. And I could just take what you said and say, me too, you know, that's the same reason <laughs> why I started Rise and Play and see and understand exactly this multiplier and impact when you focus on people. I love, Aaron, that you mentioned the 5% improving the impact of a producer would be much greater than you doing just the quantity mm -hmm. of features. Mm -hmm. And it's a switch, right, when you look at it and yeah, what is the area of influence. I really support what you just said. And it's very inspiring and encouraging for me to keep doing what I'm doing because I see there's a movement and even more consciousness about the importance of a topic. Let's begin as well with the basics here, because I think already by the definition of leader is a room for a lot of misinterpretation or even confusion. So I wanted to hear from one of you, what do you define as what we call leader in an organization or in games? Okay, so I define leadership as influencing others towards a goal. I looked at a lot of different definitions of leadership And I tried to figure out what are the commonalities and then what do I think about them? Really boil it down to like the most essential elements and it's probably not perfect, but influencing others towards a goal, influencing because there's a million ways to influence. You can direct, you can show by example, you can encourage. When I'm thinking about leadership in the context of companies, the implication is that there are others involved. People are following you. And that's a core part of being a leader is that you have followers. A leader without followers is not actually a leader. So others are important. And then it's towards a goal. This is important because there's a direction that leaders create towards something that's different than what it is today. Leaders are fundamentally change agents in the world. And so that goal, maybe the leader came up with it, maybe somebody else did, and they're helping move towards it. It doesn't matter. So a leader, that's your three key elements, influencing others towards a goal. And if any of those aspects are missing, if you're not influencing, you're just part of others moving towards a goal, then you're following somebody else's vision or something's vision, then you're just doing it on your own. You're just someone moving towards a goal. And if there's no goal, it's not necessarily leadership. It's more just, hey, I guess there's people following me, but we don't know where we're going. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very structured definition as well. For people who want to start to get into leadership, this big concept, right? And I like how you deconstructed it with those three pillars that you mentioned, and they are essential 
And so focusing on those three, ability to influence with a group, there are others involved and towards goals. What are the must-have skills to even be starting <laughs> to be leading anything? There's an interesting conversation about skills, required skills, which is, I think, a broad thing. So I'll try to high-level it. I will say influence is a skill. It's a very broad skill because like, there's probably 50 different ways you could approach that or 10 different ways you could approach that. But I think understanding how influence works and, and having methods with which you can influence others is a core skill set of leadership. I think that there is the understanding, refinement, and articulation of goals. That is a key part of leadership. Ben and I often refer to that as painting targets. There's a graceful image about not just creating a target, but painting it, painting a picture of what the world could look like. That's really, really important for leaders to have. And you'll notice that we're not going to mention any management skills here because that is something different than leadership. And I think that there's a big confusion in our industry specifically about the difference between management and leadership. To me, leadership, again, is about setting direction, influencing people in that direction and changing the world. So change management would be another core skill of a leader. I'm curious now, then what is management? Because it's also, for me, it's a term that has been used a lot in corporate structures. And I've worked more in organizations where we talked a lot about managers, people managers and management. So how would you describe it? I'm going to split this into two pieces. So one is people management. I'm going to table that for a second, because that's the idea. You're basically somebody's boss, right? You mm -hmm. have a direct report, somebody who you are accountable for. That's its own separate thing that actually mixes a lot of leadership elements and really is about taking care of the people that report to you effectively and helping them on their journey, I think is the best way I've heard that described. So that's people management. Management in the sense of I'm managing a project or I'm managing a thing to completion, whatever it is, I describe management as the optimization and maintenance of an existing system. A manager takes a system that exists and says, how can I make this system slightly better and how do I make sure it keeps running? And that's highly valuable because most of the time in any company of almost any size, there are systems that are foundational to the long-term success of that company and keeping them moving and existing is crucial to the success. If you look at like a country, right? Something like a power grid. Hey, we need to keep the power grid up. Maybe at some point in the future, a leader drives a change and we don't need power grids anymore. Power just flies through the air. But for right now, we need a power grid. And so we need to maintain the power grid. So we need to manage that power grid well and then slowly optimize it and adapt it. So management is very important. It is not leadership because it's fundamentally maintaining the status quo and slightly improving the status quo as opposed to dramatically changing it. And leaders are change agents. So that's how I define the difference between the two. Most leaders in games will do a mix of both, like a producer in games or a discipline lead will do some amount of managing, maintaining existing systems, and some amount of changing the world for the better as a leader. That helps a lot to have those definitions. And what I really like about answers from you both is like you, you seem to have thought about it a lot and trying to find really like a common language where most people can understand what we're talking about, right? Because that's the point with communication. When you have like broad concepts, it's like room for interpretation. And here you're using like very, I would say, concrete words where you cannot be too much confused of what it is. So let's move forward a bit more as well with semantics here, because there's another word where I hear <laughs> we talked about leaders. We will talk about coach and mentors. And I know a lot of people who can brag about the mentors they have. 
but not really coaching. So maybe they receive coaching and they call it mentor or the other way. So I wanted also to hear your definition of it. If I were to simplify it and tie it into Ben's definition of a leader, I would say a coach is somebody who influences somebody towards their goal. Mm, I like that a lot. I think actually you are very much in a leadership stance when you're coaching. I just think you have to completely divorce your approach from your own agenda. And you have to fully internalize and adopt the agenda and needs and aspirations of the person that you are coaching. And I think that's the difference. Yeah, I like that a lot. You show up in their world. Like if I say like, what does a coach do? It's there's somebody and they're facing their own circumstances and you're helping them understand where do they want to go and why? And the less of yourself you bring to that conversation, as Aaron said, the better. If you can get down to zero of you and all you're doing is asking them questions to help them understand themselves, their goal, and then what their next steps might be, then you're winning. And by the way, it might be diametrically opposed to how you might tackle something. That's totally okay. Where I'm like, I would not do it this way, but that's resonant for you. That's how you attack this problem. And that also actually touches into the difference between coaching and mentorship. When people brag about having a mentor or not, it's usually because the mentor is seen as somebody very capable in a space. Expertise is very important if you're going to mentor somebody. And whatever it is you're mentoring them around, you should be able to speak about that well, because they're going to bring you scenarios and you're going to potentially through leading questions, but where it was coaching, they were completely open questions to help the other person get to their own goal. In mentorship, I might ask you leading questions, or I might suggest, hey, this is a way I'm thinking about that. I bring my expertise and I bring my capacity into the conversation as a relevant factor. And you're in some sense trying to learn from that. It's different. Like you can go further. There's two other stances you can take in these. One is teaching. Mentorship is subtly different from teaching in that you are trying to ask the questions and provide the expertise and then perhaps give suggestions, but the other person is really the one that's going to drive that forward. In teaching, a scenario might come up. And if I'm teaching about it, it's like, this is how I approach that scenario. This is what I would do. Here's who I would talk to. And I kind of lay out, this is the pattern. And I'm trying to inform you about that. I'm actually not concerned whether you go and take that action or not. As long as I've taught it to you and you've received it, maybe it's relevant for you right now. Maybe it's relevant in the future. So you have the difference between the coaching, the mentoring, the teaching, and then the last one is sort of advising or that's, I think, the least useful of the four, honestly, because there's a huge risk when you go into advising somebody. I think Stephen Covey described it as I take my glasses off and I give them to you. And you're like, oh, you're having trouble seeing. Oh, you need glasses. Well, I have glasses here. My glasses will work for you. And it's like, no. So one of the challenges that can happen with advice, it's not that it's never helpful, is that often when someone's giving advice, they're not really fully understanding the situation that the other person is in. They're just saying, oh, if I was there, this is what I would do. I would say it more often than not doesn't work. I've had that experience too, where I've leaped into a conversation with someone who's struggling with something and I go straight to advice. And then they're like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I've even doubled down on my advice. I'm like, no, 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 blah, blah. And then they're like, yeah, but like this. And then I realized that what I was saying was not actually important at all. And, oh, you're dealing with a different, oh, you're in a, oh, I, I did just pretend I was you and that's what I would have done. And really you're in a very different situation than me. So we have now more definitions even to deal with, but to, <laughs> to summarize, because it's super interesting, actually, I think we are confusing quite a lot of words. And again, I care about the semantics. 
I would say from also my own understanding, coaching and talking to other coaches, it's really helping someone succeed in their goals. And it takes a very selfless approach, requires empathy and all those skills, like really where it's not about me, right? So I think here you nailed it with uh, really the focus. And mentoring is like more handing over a certain expertise. You still want to help someone, but there's less of accountability, I would say, or goal towards the other. And advising, I think the, I've been asked also to advise companies, you know, in early stages. And now being mindful about it, I think I avoid to advise because I know how it is to receive advice when they don't fit. And it makes you more stressed, actually, because you say, I, I don't know what to do with it. And it's more coaching that actually what you provide is like... I'm not going to give you, tell you anything, but I'm going to ask you a question if you're okay with that to help you reflect. I think that's the best way you can help when people ask you to advise. Because, yeah, I love the analogy with the glasses. <laughs> I think it's a good reminder because that's what we do when we have so many different ways of thinking, perceiving, processing. It might not always be helpful. Now we understand at least a bit more what we refer to when we talk about coaching. I would like to ask, what do you think are the expectations or the needs when we are to develop people in an organization? So it's important to have some layers of leadership, structure, what we call sometimes middle management as well. When we think of helping teams to succeed, what do you understand that are what people actually really need to succeed? And then maybe that would lead us like why some form of coaching is needed in organizations. To give just more context of what I mean by that question, I've been in a few organizations now where, you know, you become a lead in a lead position and you are responsible for the development of others, whatever that means, right? So that means you have one-on-one -on -one with them, you do the performance review, you make the decision if they grow, if they have a promotion, a raise, or if they don't stay in the team. So quite a lot of responsibilities, right? And so when these are the expectations of someone in a leadership position, what are the skills basically required to actually help someone be in the right team, in the right seat, or grow in the organization? So the people management lens is going to be the one I put on first here. The point that I'm going to make applies both to the people management lens and I think also the broad leadership lens, which is what I call like a strategic or value frame. A practical example of this is like, can you take one of your direct reports and sit down with them in a room during a whiteboard session and paint a world in which they've met their goals and the organization has had its needs met from that person? Because if you can paint that picture, you can work back from that picture. And I think as a leader and a manager, your responsibility in that situation is to help that person visualize that and understand that and get alignment around that with you. And you in that role are the bridge. You represent the organization and you represent them. You are their advocate. And they're going to think about what their goals are and you're going to help them maintain, manage, and clarify expectations around what the organization needs from them. So if you can find a good combination of those two things and again, paint that picture, you can then start to reverse engineer that and be like, okay, well, what do the next 90 days look like? What do the next six months look like? What are the top three most important growth areas for you? Like, it's much easier to have those conversations when you can walk back from those paintings that you have made. Unfortunately, what I see a lot of managers do is everybody ends up in some kind of quarterly performance management review where there's a bunch of leaders in a room talking about how well everyone did. And we're sort of backing into that conversation. 
oh, I heard Jim, Tom told me that Sally's doing a really good job. And Jim said that Bob really had a great conversation with Jim and Jim said he likes Bob. And so you're just trying to put all the pieces together at the last minute. And it's like the assessment criteria becomes in a worst case scenario, this bizarre high school popularity contest. And I think that this is a real failure for us as managers to show up for our reports. You need to proactively generate those outcomes and paint that picture again and then work backwards from that. And then what's great is when you do end up in that conversation where somebody's asking you to justify why this person is or isn't doing a great job, you can literally go back to that painting and say, hey, look, I sat down with this person. We had a conversation. We agreed on these five objectives. They either hit them or they didn't, right? And then we can go from there. Maybe it's a learning opportunity or whatever. But I think that it's really on us as leaders and managers in those situations to generate that clarity and understand how to have those conversations effectively. And then the thing I would add to that from that people management lens, I don't like the frame when people say that as a leader, I am responsible for the success of my direct reports. The reason I don't like it, they need to be responsible for their own success. That's really important. So then what do you do as the manager then as it relates to their success? Like you want them to be successful, right? You support them on their journey, wherever that journey goes, inside the company, outside the company, however it is, you are supporting them and where they need to go perhaps for the benefit of the company because you are also, as Aaron pointed out, the advocate for the company. So a lot of what you do as a people manager is attempt to create the environment where that success is possible. Because there's nothing more frustrating than when you're being managed by somebody and you feel like they're like, oh, you're responsible for your own success. And you're looking around and you're going, yeah, but everything sucks. <laughs> it's so hard for me to succeed. And so there's some managers that go like, well, you just got to figure it out. And then there's a truth to that. There's an element of truth to that. But there's also the, hey, part of your job as my manager is to try to smooth the rocky parts of the path. To open the doors. Yeah. Yeah. Like, give me a chance, you know. And it's an anti-pattern when you just start blaming your manager or the organization for why you can't succeed. But simultaneously, there's truth in it sometimes. There's a negative truth in there that is like, hey, if your manager's not helping you at all, that's a problem. That's a problem for you. I think that's poor management. I'm not a big pure just like throw them in, hope they float. I'll check in with them in six months and <laughs> see what happens. And in one-on-ones, I'll just ask for status reports. A core thing then that a manager does to paint the picture and to create the environment I think is actually be really curious about that person and seek to understand them. How are they interacting with the organization, with their team, with the leaders around them? What do they value? What don't they value? Like, where's that going to help them? Where's that going to hurt them? This gets into some complex stuff, but some of the best managers I ever had were very open with me about how I was viewed by the broader organization, whether it was good or bad. And they told me that because they were trying to help me on my journey. And they were basically saying, hey, on your path, there's going to be some rocky parts. I can't smooth them. There's an external thing there. So I'm going to do my best to help, but just recognize that's going to be something that, you know, I'll go through it with you, but you're going to have to go through. You're going to have to take responsibility for that. And I deeply appreciated that because it was actually helpful. It allows me to make a decision about my life, my career, where I want to go. Because if that gets bad enough, maybe the right thing for me to do is leave. Yeah, there's definitely a need of transition of a certain style of management that we used to have, like supporting your people to succeed. Requires quite a counterintuitive approach, right? So you are helping facilitate their growth that you mentioned in or out of your organization. You know, just admitting that, although we all know that we are doing this because in the end is helping people to make the conscious choice. 
One can say that we are spending time to support people, not in the interest of the company, but this is another way to think about it where we have to genuinely care beyond of what just is the company interest. And I think that's something that has changed. I saw in the expectation where people don't want to feel manipulated, that they are just a resource passed, you know, on team to team. And you are here to hit your targets as a manager where you actually care and sometimes spotting ways is a good thing for both sides, right? It's a journey you do together. And I think the other thing that is rethinking who should be a people manager is that it's not so much about you. So when you can feel proud of being competent and using your expertise, your great advice, uh, using how smart you are, it's a completely different approach where focusing on listening to uh, someone and maybe supporting things that they do that you wouldn't do at all, right? <laughs> you can ask yourself, is this useful what I'm doing? Is it something so rare and difficult? Anybody can do it. So what are your thoughts about it? And why is it not happening with more managers? Why is the gap today? There is a gap in organization. Yeah, there's two things that come top to mind for me. One of them is the perception of how management is like appropriately conferred on someone. It's like, hey, you're really good at doing stuff. So obviously you're the right person to be a manager now. And as you mentioned, those are two completely different things. So there's a misconception in the Western corporate world that once you get good enough at doing a thing or you become enough of an expert at a thing, that we should reward you or create expectations that you should now be a manager. And we very much view that as like a level one and level two equation, but it's like a level one and then moving over to A. It's a completely separate vertical and a completely separate skill set. And I think we need to acknowledge that because we're making a lot of bad decisions because we think of it in those terms. I can't tell you how many times I've seen really good principal engineer get promoted to manager. And then even that person asking like, how do I do this? Do I even want to do this? Now I'm like responsible for these people. That's really annoying because I have all this great architecture to be working on. It's just like the knee jerk response from organizations, which um, I really appreciate that a lot of companies are moving more in the direction of separating out the principal track from the management track, because there are two very different skills there. Another thing that comes to mind is like, why is this happening? We don't train people to do it well, and we don't tell them what the expectations are. What do you want your people managers to be? Because I just presented a model, and maybe you like that model. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, managers here actually should be responsible for their people and the success of their people, and we evaluate them on the success of their people and all these different things. Okay, you can pick that model. I have nuanced objections to it, but that's fine. Pick a model and then teach it to your people. That doesn't happen. We talk about this a lot when we talk about scaling leadership, and I think the same thing applies to management. There's a different set of skills you need to learn as you go up and through an organization. And if people aren't taught that, they're just going to try to use the skills that they already have. Well, they're going to default to what they know. I tell them what to do. I ask them what their problems are on an engineering side, and then I say, this is how I would solve that. And it's not that any of those things are wrong in isolation. That could actually be very helpful for driving the organization forward. Like, hey, this is the code we need to write and you know, the features that we need to have and all these things. It's that you're missing a core part of your responsibility, which is from my side, to develop those people. And that's because you're just trying to operate at level two. You're just like, oh, okay, cool. I was good at solving code problems. Now I guess I'll solve code problems through other people. And I encounter this a lot 
And I feel bad for both the manager, because usually they don't like doing that, and the people that are reporting to them now, because they're just extensions of that leader. They don't even necessarily understand why they're doing the things they're doing. They're just like extra sort of sets of hands and eyes for the architect to sort of enact his vision. Again, if you choose that model, if you're very conscious about that model, that may be what you want. I wouldn't recommend it because I think you're going to lose a lot of your best people who want to be developed and who want to grow and would prefer to have somebody there who's helping them do that. Ultimately, as you mentioned, it will touch the retention when we talk about engagement of people to want to stay because they want to grow, you know, it's uh, they want to keep growing, developing, that they feel like someone is caring about them and it's being underlooked. And then when you look at statistics of people churning, I think it tells a lot about the system of leadership. Why should they even consider investing in training for their managers? Because the biggest consequence is to lose your people and we know how much work it is to hire. It's a lot of work. So here I think we align that Yes, it requires a certain set of skills or training. And maybe to get more into ideas of solutions, I know you are helping also companies and this is a way to help like where you have embedded coach and uh, training, focusing on the leadership team. But we also talked uh, before about this resistance to coaching and training. I still see it, right? Because uh, how could someone start when maybe... Getting a coach is a bit too much of a step. I'm not saying that then, uh, you know, uh, they should not have a coach, but this is the reality we work with. And how can you make someone even be aware, like, okay, I actually like whatever is coaching and I could get more of it. So to the point that they will actually be proactive in getting a coach. What have you seen working? Coaching people without letting them realize they're being coached. How do you do that? You just start coaching them. And I think everybody here does coaching on a regular basis. The best way is to draw out trust and vulnerability through asking powerful questions and just don't call it coaching because coaching is a trigger word in the same way agility <laughs> is now becoming a trigger word in our industry. So just start doing it and don't tell anybody that's what you're doing. It might sound below board, but like, once they see the value in it, then they're going to ask. And then you can tell them, <laughs> I was just coaching you. Aaron and I are both trained coactive coaches. And technically, it's like I could never coach someone in an official context without telling them I'm coaching them. It's actually like it's unethical. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about, hey, I can say like, hey, would you like me to help you work through this with you? And if they're like, yes, it's like, okay, cool. I'm just going to start asking you some questions. What we're just going to do is we're just going to see where that goes. And I'm curious what comes up for you. And so you've been perfectly clear about what you're going to do, what stance you're going to take. You didn't call it coaching. And what's so cool about that is if you do that and they're bought into it, often you'll get to the end of it and they'll be like, that was amazing. Like I've had this happen and I didn't, I didn't even understand why. Cause I was just like, all I did was ask some questions, but they get to the end of it and they're like, that was amazing. That's so, I have so much clarity about what I want to do now. And you're like, Oh, great. You know, that's awesome. I'm so happy. I don't know what I did. And they think you did something amazing and you think they did something amazing because they did. And really that's the beauty of coaching. You held a frame, you held a container, you asked them the questions and they got somewhere. So yeah, teams often object to the stand up like a daily sink and like, Oh, what are all the like, three questions? And there's all these different formats. And we, we toss a ball around when we were all in, in the office. And now it's like, you know, and I, I just told someone like, you have a team and you're all working on the same thing together. You probably have some amount of things to talk about every day with each other. What if you took the most important 10 to 15 minutes of stuff that seems to 
need to be talked about every day. And you talked about that every day. And they were like, oh. And I was like, that's a stand-up. That's what a stand-up's trying to be. And if it's not that, you should make it that. Hmm. You should figure out how it becomes that. What are the 10 to 15 minutes of things that this whole team needs to know? You can do the same thing with coaching. Like, okay, I'm going to ask you some powerful questions. And at the end, you can do the grand reveal. That was coaching. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, oh, I didn't know I liked coaching or whatever. Interestingly, sometimes they'll come back to you and they'll say something like, hey, that thing you do, what is that? And I've had <laughs> that question come back and it's like, oh, that's coaching. That magical thing, a mystical thing you just did. What was that? <laughs> exactly. Well, and it's funny too, because if you're doing coaching right, you're not doing a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> and so it is always surprising how impactful it can be. But as someone who's been coached and had coaches like coach me well, I am always amazed. And I think they have the same thing. It's like, I didn't really do anything. I just asked you some questions. Yeah. So expectation at work as well from people like being seen, understood. And I think it's a competitive advantage as well in some way if more leaders had coaching skills, like as we just described, because it's different in a position of leadership where I started like as a general manager and I will be talking to a lot of all the leaders of the organization. And I don't consider myself as an official coach because I'm inside the organization, but I use a coaching framework to ask questions. And my last question would be, because there are several forms of coaching where you can use a coaching framework to help people reflect, inquire like with them what's happening help them grow. And there's another level where they might need external coaching, like really focused. What would you say that a leader with coaching skills can do, but cannot do, that would be better done by an external coach, for example? What is the point where in my position, when should I recommend, like, I think you should get a coach to help you with that? One of the angles I would look at it from is that, as we said earlier, Somebody who's truly in a coaching stance has divorced the process of coaching from their own agenda. So it's hard for a leader in your company to do that because they're accountable for results at your company. It doesn't mean that leaders can't coach people internal to an organization. It just means that it's way harder for you to say, hey, I really only care about you and your goals because at the end of the day, you report to me. And then I report to somebody else. And if you don't do your job, then that means I'm not doing my job and we might both get fired. So like, it's great. This idea of like, let's just talk about you and how you're doing and what your goals are. And I don't forget about all that performance <laughs> stuff. At the like, You can't do that, right? Like as a manager, you're constantly being pulled in both directions. I respect and admire managers who still take a very good and active coaching stance in that context, but it does beg the question, can you really get high quality and consistent coaching in that environment? I think there's a real argument there to have somebody from outside who isn't accountable for delivering in that context to coach your people. Now, that is an investment in your people as individuals. I think you'll get benefits from that across the board. But I do understand a degree of wariness because, you know, one example is in a bad situation, and I think this works out great for all the people, is if things aren't going well at the company and the external coach comes in and really helps those individuals realize that things aren't going well at the company, then they all quit. And now the company has paid for a coach (laughs) to come in and coach all their people out of the organization. I have seen this before. So I understand why this is a precarious kind of situation, but if you are really deliberate about your culture and you want to be responsive to the needs of your people, then I think it can be very healthy to bring in an external coach because then that external coach 
can help those people raise those issues with you and then you can address those issues. But yes, if you're not willing to do that, then yeah, the external coach is probably not a good idea for you. You're just shooting yourself in the foot. Spot on. Yeah. I think the other thing, if you have someone who's really high potential and you want to accelerate them in their career and also show that you see them as high potential and want to invest in them and you think that they're open to it, getting them an external coach may really help may help them see themselves as valued by you and the company, because especially if the company's paying for that, and it may level them up in ways that you can't see, because as Aaron said, you're invested. You're too close to the problem. Yeah, thanks for the clarification. I think uh, here it's an important nuance where, back to the question that when we started the conversation, should a leader be a coach? I will try to answer based on our conversation today. A leader is different from a coach, and having a leader being a coach is hard in that context because yes there's a conflict of interest and at the end of the day we are accountable for a reason and from my experience as well having been coached there's complete confidentiality of what you with what you share safety trust where you can even talk about your manager who might be your problem you know which you cannot talk to your own manager so there's definitely a point of neutrality that can be achieved only by an external person behind my question was more should a leader have a bit of a coaching skills, not necessarily being a coach, but the things we talked about, like how to be focused on someone, listening, asking questions. Yeah, 100% unequivocally. I think the industry hasn't caught up to this yet, but I think that we are well past the point where all of the data shows unequivocally that leaders need to have a coaching skill set. Yes. There's Google studies now five, six years old, where it demonstrates clearly that what people value most in their managers is a coaching skill set. And as our organizations become more distributed, more autonomous, and we focus more on knowledge work, like creative, uncertain knowledge work, the idea that a leader can just come in with a directorial stance in most situations and say, this is what we need to do. You do this, you do this, you do this. That style of management is going away. And it's only going to get farther away with every single year that passes. And so there's a question of like, how does a leader use a skill set that allows them to draw out what is important and draw out vulnerability and draw out meaningful discussion and draw out alignment? That's a coaching skill set. And so I think leaders that don't know how to do this are going to find themselves severely falling behind. And I think with COVID now, it's accelerated that trend quite a bit. We see a ton of managers right now who are struggling to make an impact and understand what their roles are. And there's a lot of contributors that are saying, maybe we don't need those people anymore. Hmm. If all they were doing was making Jira dashboards, (laughs) yelling at us about our tickets, maybe we don't need them anymore because I can focus and get my work done. So what is this producer even doing for me? I think coaching is the answer to a lot of those questions. Whether you're managing somebody or you're a leader of a team, a discrete team, that ability, we talked about like a set of different stances, you need to be able to go into that coaching stance and then you might jump out of it and go into a mentoring stance and you might go back to coaching and then you might go over to teaching. Oh, my direct report who I'm talking to right now, they don't know something they need to know. Let me just teach that to them, right? I didn't know they didn't know that or I'm senior, they're associate. There's lots of things they don't know that I might know, right? That's why I'm in the position I'm in. And the ability to move smoothly between those rather than getting stuck in any one really helps the direct report or the person on the team who you're helping as well as yourself. And 
I think one of the most important things about both the mentoring stance and especially in, in the coaching stance is just that high degree of curiosity and question asking. Because like I said, you don't want people to quit. You used to sit next to them and you go to lunch together and it was very easy to feel connected to work. Now people turn on their computer and they're in Zoom meetings. And that's it. They're much more distant in so many ways from the people they used to work with and that they still work with. It's so easy to feel as if people don't care about you. Because if you don't hear from someone for two years, you assume they don't care that much about you. By the way, maybe that makes sense. So be somebody who's going out as a leader, as a manager, especially as a manager, and be engaging in those questions and asking and seeking to understand those people. Because it's not just that you'll gain so much valuable information about how to make their life easier and therefore everybody's life easier and successfully ship better products more and faster. They will also feel understood and they won't quit. They're less likely to become frustrated. It is more true than ever, you know, the old saying that uh, people join companies and quit bosses. And I keep that in mind. It's still the case. Huh? Well, thanks a lot, Ben and Aaron, for uh, all those insights and very actionable insights. We're reaching, unfortunately, the end of our time. But I'd like to summarize some quite important takeaways for people here who are really serious about leveling up their organization and having, you know, the leadership of today and not of the past. I think one big takeaway is like training, investing in the training of anyone in a position of people manager and investing in their coaching skill sets. And uh, we define today what is a coach, what does a lead is supposed to do, or talk to Ben and Aaron, the company uh, teaching about those things. And I think the second is especially investing in the growth of people and high potential. There are people who are really, really passionate about their craft. They want to grow. They have a lot of energy. I see it's amazing. And investing in their development with an external coaching, I saw that and the power of that. And it's amazing. It's a transformation, right, for the person. It's an investment, but it's totally worth it when you really want to support your best people in the organization. Well, thanks a lot for all those insights, your passion on the topic. And it's been a pleasure to talk about those things with you. It feels like we are having just a catch up, you know, and advancing the topic about this whole mess of coaching leaders. Thanks a lot and hope to uh, catch up in a future recording. We'll see you at which podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Yes. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. I am trying to grow a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. So if you want to join this movement, please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. Also, please don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on future content. Every episode is packed with actionable insights that will help you improve your leadership skills now. And if you are interested in learning more on the topics that we discussed today, You can find more insights on riseandplay.io and there you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership. So have a great week and until the next time.